Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. So Lydia, the first week of the 2023 term is in the books. The justices heard three cases, including a challenge to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding structure, another administrative law case that could have big implications even beyond the CFPB. We're going to bring on a guest to chat about that argument in just a moment. But first, uh, we've got a pretty interesting slate of advocates arguing during the October sitting. And Kimberly, you wrote a story about that. So who are we going to hear from this month? Right, Lydia. So one thing to note is that there are more women arguing the sitting than is typical over a term. So in the past decade, we've seen women argue anywhere between 12 to 23 percent of the cases at the court, which is pretty low. Uh, But the number of attorneys of a color is actually probably even fewer Uh, But this sitting, six of the 15 arguments will be done by women. Notably, however, this diversity is being driven by advocates from the Solicitor General's office, academia and public interest groups. And law firms are continuing to send men predominantly to the lectern. There are a few notable lawyers among that group, though. Uh, The two top Supreme Court advocates for the Trump administration, Noel Francisco and Jeff Wall, will be arguing this sitting. And several of the justices will see a friendly face next week when Justice Antonin Scalia's son steps up to the lectern. That's right. Justice Scalia's son and former Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia will be arguing against a financial whistleblower's case on Tuesday. Now, Kimberly, it's pretty rare to see a direct descendant of a justice argue a case. Uh, The most recent example that I could find was of Ramsey Clark. Uh, He's the son of Justice Tom C. Clark. And he argued a case in 1959 uh, that his dad had to recuse himself from. And then he appeared a second time in 72. But by then, his dad was already retired. So um, I did find that the first daughter of a justice to argue was Susan Brandeis, um, the daughter of Justice Louis Brandeis in 1925. So that's a little bit of uh, fun Supreme Court history there for all you history buffs. So with that, let's bring on our guest to talk about the CFPB. So joining us is Michael Waldman, president and CEO of the Brennan Center and author of The Supermajority, a book about the Supreme Court's tumultuous 2021 term. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. So our other host, Greg, and I did an episode on this case last term when the case was granted. So our audience should go back and listen to that. But just to kick us off here, Michael, wondering if you can give us a brief overview about what the case is about. The case is important both in its own terms and the impact it might have, as well as what it says about the larger project by this Supreme Court of taking on the administrative state and the ability of government to act. It was an agency that was created in the wake of the crash of 2008 to protect consumers and homeowners and others against abusive practices. It was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren before she was a senator. And it was the first major consumer agency created in decades. And Congress set it up in a way to try to protect it from a lot of the lobbying and the push and pull of Washington. One way they did that was how it was going to be funded. Instead of it being funded year in and year out as part of the appropriations process, they had it funded by the Federal Reserve, which had previously taken on a number of the tasks that the agency did. And the Fed gets its money from from its investments, from the banks it regulates, and from being the Fed. So it insulated this consumer agency from the vicissitudes of lobbyist-clogged Washington. 
This case by the payday lending industry said, oh, that's unconstitutional. That violated the appropriations clause of the Constitution. They could not create a system like that to fund this agency. Uh, and that is the question in front of the court. It's obviously very important for this agency because it is how it's paid for. And it's important for others as well. Yeah, thank you for that. So um, I was in the courtroom for arguments on Tuesday, but I'm interested to hear your take. Did it seem to you like there was a majority of the justices who were inclined to say that the CFPB's funding structure is unconstitutional? I'd say from what I could tell, it is a divided court and it is hard to know how it's going to come out. Certainly the most conservative justices seem to buy Noel Francisco's argument, he was the former Trump solicitor general at the very politically connected law firm Jones Day, that uh, this was just Congress giving away its power too much uh, and that the court should police this separation of powers between the branches. Um, The liberals were quite derisive about the arguments. And Amy Coney Barrett as well was pretty skeptical of the arguments that were made. I mean, I think we're all struggling to figure out then what's what's the standard that you would use. Just assuming that you're right, that there has to be something more than the $600 million. How do you decide how much is too much or how specific is specific enough? It seems like this will be a case that may turn on Justice Kavanaugh and his views. This is one that's important to note. We've gotten used to thinking of John Roberts, as on the Dobbs case, as the person concerned with the court's institutional credibility, he votes with the liberals. But on these issues of government power and regulation, he is a long-term, long-time advocate for really sharply limiting the role of government agencies through the Constitution, through the Supreme Court. Before he was put on the Supreme Court, the New York Times identified him as one of the federal judges most willing to use the Constitution to do exactly this kind of thing. So Roberts, I would say, even though he was more silent, I would be not surprised if he voted with Clarence Thomas and Alito on this one. Now, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger emphasized the text of the Appropriations Clause and the history of agency funding structures. You know, that really seemed like an argument tailored to the conservative court. Do you think that was her endgame there? Uh, She did a very good job, by all accounts, uh, of making the point to these putative originalists that this is something they did back then. Uh, This is this weird world we're in where if you can prove that somebody in a powdered wig did this (laughs) in the 1700s, then it's okay in 2023. But she really did do that. She made the point that the Constitution talks about appropriations, but in a very big, broad way, giving Congress the power to figure out how to do it. And that it's over the years, it's come up with all different kinds of systems and that the customs uh, agency, for example, at the very beginning, which was the main way the federal government did anything at that point. It was funded not by Congress, uh, but by whatever it got from the ships it was seizing. So uh, it's an interesting use of history in the following sense. First of all, it was an originalist argument because she was able to find something from the days of the 1700s. But she was also making a different historical argument, which is that history did not stop in 1787. The history that you need to look at was the whole history of the country, the whole history over the last two and more centuries of how 
our government developed and how Congress was creative in coming up with the ways to pay for these agencies. And that that, if you're going to look at history, look at the whole history. That is a very different approach from the, the kind of, I would argue, cartoonish originalism history that we see in some of these cases. If you looked at the whole history, for example, the Bruin case on the Second Amendment would have come out very differently because the law that it was striking down was from 1911, which yeah. is history <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I don't know about anybody listening, but if you're if it wasn't history to you, you know, congratulations <laughs> on your longevity. Um, so uh, I, I think it was it was an interesting. It was both a, a a clever and appropriate use of of originalism when you have the opportunity to, to do it, but it was also trying to reclaim what history's proper role is in 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 Supreme Court cases. Uh, there was a case called Noel Canning, which was by Justice Breyer back about a decade ago, that was his attempt to kind of rebut some of the other versions of how to use history. And he basically also said, and the court then said, yeah, 1787, it's good to know what happened, then what happened after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll be interesting, too, to see how that plays out in another case that the justices are going to be hearing on the Second Amendment this term, Rahimi, to see how to update history. Um, but back to the CFPB, one of the most striking moments for me in the courtroom was when Justice Thomas asked late in the argument, uh, asked former Solicitor General Noel Francisco, who was arguing against the CFPB, to finish his sentence. Mr. Francisco, just briefly, uh I'd like you to complete this uh, sentence. Uh, funding of the CFPB is violates the appropriations clause because. And to me, it seemed like he was struggling um, to understand the limits that uh, Francisco and others were arguing. Um, was that the way that, that you took it as well? It, it, yeah, I think Francisco came in with a lot of different possible ways to go, and he tried them all, <laughs> from what I could see. Um, is it because the money was too much? Is it because the the source of the money was not Congress passing it every year in the gloriously efficient appropriations <laughs> process that we're seeing all the time? That this argument was happening at a time when the federal government looked like it was being hijacked by a clown car of appropriators shutting the government down for very unclear political reasons doesn't really make a strong argument that you need the Constitution to tell you that that is the only way to fund something. But what is an appropriation? Does it require a time limit? Does, is it the number of dollars? This actually did have a number of dollars, $600 million. Is it where they get the money? All of these things are things that different agencies have been set up with in different ways over time. This particular agency is unusual because it's funded by the Fed, but there are other agencies that are funded in different ways. And I think Francisco had a hard time drawing that line in a way that helped his clients. <laughs> um, it might, you know, having both a current and a former solicitor general do cases like this, they, 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 there's all these really interesting intellectual arguments, but they don't necessarily ultimately wind up helping the outcome that his clients want. Yeah, so not surprising to see, you know, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, you know, criticize uh, Noel Francisco's arguments there. But here we had uh, Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, um, who also seem to be doing that. And so do you think that they might not be willing to go as far as the Fifth Circuit went in this case? I think that the court 
the Supreme Court, in taking on this next wave of cases this year and going forward, what we're seeing, first of all, is are there any differences among the conservative justices on how to approach some of these things? I don't know that it's a doctrinal difference as much as a temperamental difference. Barrett and Kavanaugh and Roberts all seem highly aware that the public approval of the Supreme Court has collapsed to the lowest level ever recorded in polls, that there's been a fierce backlash that has grown over time to some of the rulings in the first term of the supermajority of very conservative justices, six of them, all working together. They're not making a strongly different intellectual argument, but seem to be looking for a way to put their foot on the brakes to a certain degree. I wouldn't, however, overinterpret the argument in the courtroom on something like that. Kavanaugh did seem to focus on the central fact that unlike, I suppose, something that is an entitlement like Social Security, um, Congress could tomorrow repeal this. If a member of our House of Congress tomorrow, uh, if a majority of the House of Congress said, we're not going to fund, pick your agency, unless we change the CFPB funding structure, they could do that. But let's not forget, this court, especially this term, is really embarking on a multi, I think, on a multi-year project of using the Supreme Court, using the highly conservative federal judiciary, using the Constitution to curb the power of government, to curb the role of regulatory agencies like this one. And it may be that this issue of the funding mechanism is too weird a <laughs> way for them to do it. But starting with the West Virginia versus EPA case, they unveiled the, quote, major questions doctrine in West Virginia versus EPA, which I write about in my book in June of 2022. That was a climate change case. And in that case, even though Congress had passed a law, the Clean Air Act, that gave the agency the power to do what it did, it was just too big a deal for it really to have had that power given to it. And the people who would decide that would be judges. Part of the problem for the plaintiffs in this case, is that if they rule the way they want, it could really put at risk the Federal Reserve itself, the FDIC, the National Credit Union Administration, maybe even Social Security, all these other agencies and functions that Congress and the President have set up with some kind of creative funding stream, farm programs, all these different kinds of things. And so the, the standard can't be just, if Elizabeth Warren created an agency, that's unconstitutional. <laughs> you know, um, uh, But it's hard to come up with a standard other than, other than that. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely keeping our eye on the project of um, reigning in the administrative state, particularly when the court hears later in the term the Loper-Bright case. But um, one question I wanted to ask about was this was a case that came from the Fifth Circuit. You mentioned conservative judges, you know, really having robust power now under the Roberts court. But last time we saw a majority of the really extremely conservative positions out of the Fifth Circuit rejected by the Supreme Court. I'm wondering if you think that's going to continue to happen, looking at the cases that they have. They have that gun case that I mentioned earlier out of the Fifth Circuit, uh, this case here, which didn't seem to get a lot of great reception. Um, Do you expect the Supreme Court to continue to reject sort of these extreme arguments? And if so, what's going on? 
What's going on in the Fifth Circuit? So, you know, in, in, in the recent past, it used to be the Ninth Circuit was seen as this sort of hippy-dippy psychedelic court, and the Supreme Court would strike it down every once in a while to show they were sober and sensible. They still do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do. But the Fifth Circuit is Texas and Louisiana, and it is, at this point, by far the most magified court in the land. It is more that way than anywhere else, and it is constantly pushing the envelope. It's constantly putting out rulings that uh, go well beyond precedent and well beyond what other courts even think, even other conservative courts think is the, the bounds of constitutional law, sort of to see what the Supreme Court will do. The Rahimi case, as you mentioned, is a really good example. The Rahimi case was not a lone judge was not a judge Kasmarik, who's this judge in Amarillo who makes these incendiary rulings for the whole country, for example. This was a court of appeals ruling, three judges. And the Rahimi case said that the law taking away guns from people with protective orders, with an adjudicated record of domestic violence, that violated the Second Amendment. And so there was so much horror at that ruling and the extremism that it represented. And what's interesting is that the Supreme Court took the case. If they just wanted to let that ruling stand, they would have done what was done for more than a decade after Heller and McDonald, the case that went along with it, when the Supreme Court didn't take any of these cases. Instead, at least four of the justices thought it worth taking the Rahimi case. And that suggests that they will at least potentially pull back on what the Fifth Circuit did. So I think you're seeing a joust in some respects between the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit. Again, not necessarily in terms of overall direction, but but if you th- the, the Fifth Circuit is kind of acting like the House of Representatives Republican caucus right now and just sort of doing, doing stuff and seeing what happens. <laughs> and I, th- I think that Roberts and the others are very serious about the direction they want to steer the court and the country. They don't see these kind of antics necessarily as helpful to that. They, uh, but the direction they're trying to steer doesn't change. It's just how how they're doing it. Mm, interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time to chat with us about this case. You know, we'll we'll be eager to see sort of how this one shakes out. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting interview. I really uh, I hadn't thought about the idea of using history in a different way. So even though like. Prelogger's arguments really did seem to be tailored to the conservative court. She's still trying to, like, you know, nudge in some new stuff. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if the justices buy that argument. You know, like, can she really push them in in the direction she wants to go using history in that way? Hmm. We'll see. TBD. But before we go, uh, let's briefly discuss the other two cases that were argued at the court this week. Kimberly, can you tell us about the term opener, uh, Pulsifer versus U.S.? Sure, Lydia. For one hour and 41 minutes on Monday, the justices debated the meaning of the term and. Wow. And. An hour and 41 41 minutes. That's a long time to discuss the word and. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the issue comes up in the context of the First Step Act. That is the bipartisan measure signed into law by former President Trump to reduce the effects of harsh drug sentences. The question for the justices is a very important one, even though it is kind of funny to focus on 
the word and, but it's about who is eligible for so-called safety valve relief, which allows a judge to ignore mandatory minimums based on the defendant's criminal history. So actually has some pretty big impacts. Yeah. But the court, you know, heard another interesting case on Wednesday uh, in a challenge to a so-called tester lawsuit that a disability rights advocate brought against a hotel in Maine. You know, in this case, there's a woman named Deborah Lawfer, and she sued the owner of a hotel after she went on the hotel's website and couldn't find any information about whether its rooms are handicapped accessible. Uh, but the hotel said Miss Lawfer doesn't have standing, you know, that legal injury that's needed to bring a lawsuit forward because she never actually planned to book a room. Mm-hmm. So Miss Lawfer is a self-described Americans with Disabilities Act tester. She basically goes to hotel websites and sees if they list any accessibility information. And when they don't, she then files a lawsuit. She's had over like 600 of these cases. Mm. So the question for the justices is whether she has standing or not. Um, But they actually spent quite a bit of the 90 minutes of arguments (laughs) uh, questioning whether this case is moot since the hotel has now updated its website to say it's not accessible. Uh, The hotel has now actually changed ownership. And Ms. Lawfer is no longer pursuing her claims against the hotel. Justice Elena Kagan said this case is dead, dead, dead. This is like dead, dead, dead in all the ways that something can be dead. Yeah, that was um, that was maybe the only interesting point in the argument was when she said it was dead, dead, dead. Um, I was actually explaining this case to my husband, who is also a lawyer. I have a lot of them in the family. And um, <laughs> stay away from the Robinson family. <laughs> And I was telling my husband, this case was about standing, but it's turned into one about mootness. And he was like, he was like, I don't go any further. Let's talk about the and case. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So they might just end up digging that case or dismissing it as improvidently granted. So we'll have to see what happens there. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Next week will be another light week at the court with the justices hearing three more cases, including a redistricting challenge that could help determine the outcome of the 2024 elections and control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Follow along with all that and the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, It's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.